Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and today I'm joined with Dick Foth, who's an author, storyteller, and speaker. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. First of all, thanks so much for joining in to today's episode. If this is your first time tuning in, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. If you're a longtime listener, thank you for your continued support. And if you have not done so already, I greatly appreciate if you leave a review, rating on iTunes or Google Play. Today's conversation is with Dick Foth, who's an author, storyteller, and speaker. If I could say one word uh, to describe Dick, it would be the power of relationships. Uh, Dick's earliest memory comes at the early age of three in New York City, where he was watching a parade for Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander, coming back from Europe. From this moment, uh, Dick explored the world, setting sail from New York to India, where he'd spent some of his formative years. In this episode, you're going to hear a lot about his bold curiosity and courageousness uh, that Dick embodies. We discuss his time working with people in places of power in Washington, D.C., and surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, once you get to know Dick, the attorney general and the head of the Navy become his two best friends. Dick details his passion for storytelling and makes sure to make note the place where this all starts and the power of this conversation. His approach is much more conducive to developing a good relationship uh, than bringing about divisive topics. He shares how he's able to bring such people of power, of stature, of notoriety and authority uh, down to the same level as one, one another. Before we make a judgment, let's get to know each other. How do we flourish our relationships? This is a question that we think about as we continue to develop and make our relationships known. Uh, we, we discuss his book, Known, as well, um, and he shares a bit more about he's personally been able to develop and maintain some long relationships throughout the years. Finally, uh, he explains the need for uh, authentic and deep relationships uh, in contrast to what we're seeing a lot of right now, surface-level uh, artificial relationships um, and to truly explore how we are known rather than telling each other what we are not. So I'm excited for this conversation with Dick Foth and I'm going to turn on over to my talk with him. To kick things off, I think it would be uh, it would be important and good for us to get a bit more into your into your background and childhood, uh, which can then set the narrative for a lot of the work and a lot of the things that you have you have done since then. So I'd love to hear a bit more about your childhood upbringings and really when faith, how and when faith came into the picture for you. Okay, I was born on St. Patrick's Day, March seventeenth, nineteen forty-two, about five months after, or four months after Pearl Harbor attack. Um, when I was, I was born in Alameda, California, which is near Oakland, in San Francisco Bay Area. And when I was three, in this pastor's home into which I was born, my parents ended up going as missionaries to India, and right after the war ended. So in September of 1945, we sailed out of New York City, 
So my earliest memory, and part of it, I don't know if it's a real memory or if it's because I've seen movies, but earliest memory was a parade of General Dwight David Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander coming home from Europe, largest parade New York City's ever seen, and I'm three years old standing on the street there. And uh, anyway, went off to India for four years, and it was during that time I went to a British boarding school up in the uh, tea plantations of South India, about 6,000 feet, and uh, they would have chapels at this British boarding school once a week. It was a British girls' boarding school, by the way, and they let little boys go there till they were 10, and then when you're 10, you figure out those are girls, and so they send you someplace else. <laughs> but, but the, <laughs> and then they kick you out. at the end of one yeah. of those chapels, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of one of those chapels, the, the teacher who was giving the talk said, if you want to know more about Jesus, uh, at the end of this chapel, go to the principal's office. Well, the, you know, like the principal's office is a huge hurdle to the kingdom of God. <laughs> but that day, I gave as much as I understood of my seven-year-old self to as much as I could understand of Jesus. And so that was the start of my journey. Uh, we came back and lived for one year in 1950 in Springfield, Missouri. And lived three doors down from a kid named John David, which is a part of my story decades later. Went back to California with my parents, grew up in Oakland area, graduated high school there. Um, thought I was called into some kind of vocational ministry, but I was a stutterer. When I was in that boarding school, I started stuttering. So I stuttered from age five to about age 28. And so I decided, well, I can't do that ministry thing so i'll i'll be a doctor because doctors don't have to talk they just cut on people so i went to cal berkeley in 1959 and proceeded to get five units of d in chemistry 1a <laughs> after that decided not to inflict myself yeah. on the medical community transferred to a small uh, christian college met the girl who would later be my wife married her uh, after that anyway th those are my growing up years yeah wow that's the, very fascinating and a few things really resonated with me, and uh, I thought first what, what you mentioned was was to learn more about Jesus. You had to go to the principal's office, which was definitely a leap of faith for for any any seven year old at that time. So that 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 set you on a path of uh, of you know taking and approaching things head on, and uh, being a man of you know of courage and I'm, I'm sure uh, determination as well. And it, it looks like that was that continued for your uh, for your speech impediment, stuttering as well, and. That's something that I that I have uh, that I had from about the age of seven till about twenty two, so it was uh, any really? kind of, any kind of speaking or any kind of uh, you know doing anything in public where I had to have a voice was not something that I enjoyed doing. And it's it's mm -hmm. funny kind of how you see God work in your kind of in, in these weak in your weakest times and these weakest moments to um, to propel you forward and, and create a ministry out of it. Um, so I want to hear a bit more about kind of when you had that calling to, you know, get, get more involved in the church, uh, pastoring, and, and then also into leadership as well with, uh, with, uh, with, with the college in California and how, how that, that ended up coming to be when it seemed like that would have been the last thing for you to do. Well, I married my wife, Ruth, uh, six weeks after graduating college in 1963 and three weeks later. I loaded up the 1960 Corvair. You're too young to know what a Corvair is, but it was a Chevy 
that was really dangerous. So I brought, I bought three of them over those years. <laughs> they called it dangerous because had the motor in the rear and it was light in the front end. Anyway, loaded up the 1960 Corvair and went. Drove 2,300 miles to Wheaton College Graduate School in Wheaton, Illinois. And there, uh, that shaped sort of how I saw mission and uh, what I would come to define as ministry. There's ministry in the broadest sense that all of us are ministers, but then a more defined sense. And there was a real um, moment in my, my two-year career at Wheaton when I was writing a master's thesis on a missions topic, and there wasn't well, hardly any uh, secondary material. That is, there were hardly any books on this subject, so I needed to do interviews. My professor, Dr. Lois Labar, who was an NYU PhD single lady in her late 50s, said, Dick, are you going to go? This is just before Christmas, or is in the fall of 64. She said, are you going to go to the Urbana Conference? InterVarsity Christian Fellowship does a conference three times a year since 51. The University of Illinois, I think they moved it now to St. Louis, but um, they did it at the field house, the University of Illinois. And um, I said, Dr. Lowe, and, and 200 uh, faith missions would come, and it was for recruiting state university students, essentially, to go into missions overseas. I said, I'd love to go to Dr. Lois, but it's 50 bucks for the week, and that's all Ruth makes in a week here working at the college, and I wouldn't go without her. And this little woman, she was a sparrow of a woman, uh, under five feet, I think. She stood up, walked mm-hmm. into a back room, came back, opened my hand, and laid five brand-new $20 bills in my palm and said, take Ruth and go to Urbana. Mm-hmm. That $100 changed the trajectory of our lives. Because 18 months later, we came back and did a church plant there. Uh, I had in my heart to go back to India as a missionary. and But in our particular background denominational, you had to be a senior pastor for two years. Well, after I graduated Wheaton and I applied to do this, I was 24 years old. Nobody wants a 24-year-old senior pastor unless you're a college kid. Because if you're an 18-year-old, a 25-year-old is almost done, you know, almost over. And so, and so Ruth and I went to do a church plant with 10 or 12, maybe 15 university students at the University of Illinois. You're going to stay two years and stay 12. And it was back from 66 to 78 so it was all during those years of upheaval you know 50 years ago 68 was a terrible year in our country you had the assassination of robert kennedy you had the assassination of martin luther king two months before that you had riots all kinds of things going on but it was during those years that we were in urbana and it totally framed sort of how we see the world so that's yeah, no, yeah. that's 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 incredible, and um, and when you, uh, yeah, I, I like I like how you you said the Corvair. So you got you got three Corvairs. So you were essentially the uh, the uh, triple threat. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> Watch out! Here he comes. Here he comes. <laughs> uh, uh, they were great. I don't know why they said they were so dangerous. You know, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. it's a yeah. Um, I, I want to know a bit more about kind of transitioning into uh, into one of your into your into your recent book. Um, and some of the kind of where I'm sure you've been investing and spending a lot more time recently. And I want to hear kind of maybe if you've drawn any insights from or have thought about uh, the way that uh, relationships are really developed and the importance of them in India kind of being a lot more, uh, it's a lot more contextual. Uh, or There might be there are a lot more uh, nuances in culture that uh, that impact relationships and maybe some findings or things that 
maybe you took away from there that uh, or other experiences as well that that led you to say, you know what, focusing on relationships is something that is not only important but but necessary. Yeah, I tell I tell folks, and I hadn't thought of this till just a couple of years back, that you know I'm three and a half years old when I end up in India. So for my and I started boarding school when I was four. So nine months away from my parents with my older sister mm. in, in this boarding school. And we were in the last days of the British Raj, which is 200 years of British domination in India. And I was in a British context surrounded by Hindu culture, essentially. And what it did for me, both the boarding school and the cultural piece, what it did for me was to make me unafraid of things that were different than I was. Well, if you're not afraid of things that are different, it, it, it almost can make you curious about things that are different. And I think mm-hmm. that curious piece, the, the desire to ask questions about things and people is the basis for any kind of discovery and particularly any kind of discovery in relationship. So I tell people today, you know, apart from the great ideas that move us, there are two things that we deal with our whole lives, from age six to age 96, whatever, and that's relationships and money. And one of those will make you rich, and it ain't money. You know, mm-hmm. your, your portfolio can go away overnight. Ask people what happened 10 years ago. You know, it just it can do that. So that peace then became more profound when I became a young pastor. I'm young. I've got 52-year-olds sitting in a congregation. I'm 25, let's say. And I'm saying they expect me to teach them about life. They think I know more about Jesus, and I'm not sure either of those things were accurate. But I started saying, you know, they're, they, they've been around the sun 20, 30 more times than I have. Maybe they could teach me some stuff about life. We've got these four little kids. We... And so I started seeing people as potential teachers. And it didn't make any difference whether they were seven or whether they were 77. Because kids can teach you stuff. So now I am coming up on 77, right? And I sit with older grandchildren who are in their 20s and we're sitting at a table. I said, tell me what it is you want from people of my generation. And instantly, the eldest one, who at that time was 23, said, Grandpa, what we want is respect. I said, that's crazy. That's what we want from you. (laughs) (laughs) What you find out when you start asking questions of people is that we're all very much the same. So if I'm Mm -hmm. talking to a Hindu guy, or if I'm talking to a Muslim, or I'm talking to a capitalist, or I'm talking to the president of a nation, and I say this I ask this question. What did you do for fun as a kid? Everybody's on the same page. Everybody did stuff for fun as a kid. And it's a non-threatening question. It's a, So when I'm a young pastor, and by the way, interrupt me anytime you want, because I'll just go on. You know, I'll just ramble here. But, right. Yeah, no, yeah. so um, I, I have your book right here, actually. So fi- uh, known uh, by Dick and Ruth, and Ruth Foth, um, Finding Deep Relationships in a Shallow World. Um, and... He, book it was it was incredible reading i read it a few months back actually and um the the insights kind of bet- uh, from ruth as well at the end and and, and the different comments and and pass and, and and pieces that she wrote and and kind of 
almost working alongside, uh, but but at sometimes you know in in different places as well. Um, yes. And I, and I wanted to know, um, kind of as you as you continue to progress and ended up moving to DC uh, in a place where I think it's correct me if I'm wrong, maybe the epicenter of uh, a lack of really true and deep relationships, or at least one of the places where uh, at the surface, it's kind of like a New York, it's like a Boston, it's a very business marketplace transactional place, right. which, right. you know, when you're looking at it, at a maybe from a faraway place, you say, you know, how, how can there be relationships in here? You know, or as some people say, this is a godless city. You know, for some for some of these places, New York, Boston, D.C., I'm sure Chicago, L.A., but um, but, you know, it's you spending a lot of time here working at the market in the, at the intersection of business uh, and government in, in the marketplace. Um, I'm sure you, you were able to to experience relationships kind of for better, or for worse. I want to know what you what you learned from there or maybe some things that um, that that shocked you or really you know, prompted you to, to, to seek more and investigate more where there, there might not have been, uh, so much from the, from the beginning. Sure. Well, when I was a young pastor, that 20 something guy at the university of Illinois, there were two kinds of people that I felt awkward around in my head. I didn't show it on the outside. One was people who had money because I'm a kid from East Oakland, California. I wasn't raised with money. So I thought rich people were different. And the other one was people who were specialists, these people who had PhDs in chicken enzymes. You know, I'm a, I have a PhD in shallow. You know, I'm a generalist. I'm great at parties where you just, you know, it just schmooze a little bit. But, but if you ask me the third question on any topic, I move to somebody else because I just... <laughs> there, right? so, That's lovely. So, yep. so what happened is I went from the pastorate to a college presidency where those are exactly the two kinds of people you have to deal with as a college president people of means, major donors, and faculty who are specialists. So then I come to DC and I'm dealing with specialists who have money, generally. Not not everybody, but it's that kind of environment. The challenge with high intensity epicenter places, whether it's whether it's the media community in LA, whether it's the intellectual center of the world, Boston, at least that's what they you guys thinking, but mm-hmm. no way. But you have, you know, what is it, 104-year institutions within one hour of downtown Boston. I mean, it's huge, right? Yeah. And, and New York City, a financial center, and then you've got the power center where those three things sort of come together in D.C. in a small city. Mm-hmm. It's only like 550,000 people yeah. within the city limit. But it's three cities. So you have the city-city, or what they call the district, which is the working folks who live there, essentially, you have the federal city, which is the national capital, and then you have the international city with 160 mm-hmm. embassies, plus huge groups of immigrants from Latin America and from Ethiopia and all of that. And what I saw, because our role in D.C. was to work, essentially walk with whomever we came in contact with, befriend them, mm-hmm. so whatever socioeconomic level, but, um, but a lot of the time was spent with people who were in places of power, what we would consider places of power, whether it was on the Hill or at the Pentagon or state or commerce or justice or wherever. And what happens is that the higher you go up the ladder of any enterprise, whether it's healthcare, education, military, is that the more competitive it gets. 
And so you play your cards closer to your vest, as we used to say, and you end up at the top of the heap running something and you end up with a thousand acquaintances, but no friends. Leadership is not hard because you have to make decisions. That's what leaders do. They make a hundred decisions a day. Leadership's hard because you don't know who to trust. And you see it every day on the news feeds at every level. It doesn't make a difference whether it's Hollywood or DC or Berlin or Tierra del Fuego. You know, it doesn't make any difference. The leadership is hard because you don't know who to trust. So our function in DC was to befriend people who on the surface were wary of you. So I say to you, Senator Tyler, I, you know, sir, I, I just like to, I'd like to be your friend. And you look at me and say, yeah, right. And you wait for the other shoe to drop. Well, when the other shoe doesn't drop after two or three years, maybe you say, um, you know, I see you're hanging out with a couple of folks that I know both. Uh, maybe we could have coffee sometime or, you know, my, my life has lived in 15 minute increments. Why don't you come by and we'll have a stand up conversation for 15 minutes. And that's how the relationships develop. I had, if you have a moment, Tyler, for me to sort of personalize this, I had the great good fortune of having a friend, that kid that lived where we lived on the same street in Springfield, Missouri for one year back in 1950 that I mentioned earlier. His name was John David. Uh, 45 years later, a year after we get to D.C., he ends up coming to Washington, D.C. as a senator from Missouri. His name was John David Ashcroft. And six years later, he's made the Attorney General of the United States. And um, two years after I got there, the son of my boss when I was the church planter in Illinois, his son was in the Navy, one of his sons, and he comes to the Pentagon as a three-star admiral. And in the same year that Ashcroft became Attorney General, Vern Clark became Chief of Naval Operations, head of the whole U.S. Navy. So for four years, from 2000 to 2004, this kid from East Oakland, who's, who's sort of scared of rich people and specialists, end up, my two closest friends in D.C. essentially were the Attorney General of the United States and the head of the Navy. You couldn't write a Hollywood script for that. And so, and what happens then when you start walking with folks like that, other people think you're important when you're not, but you just keep your mouth shut, which is very hard for me, and you just go with it. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Um, so, want to want to dig a, a bit deeper into uh, sure. into um, uh, I guess this this concept and notion of uh, of storytelling and, and the yes. importance that right. it's had, and the yeah. importance that it's had for you and how you uh, not that, that how you live by it as well. Um, but how it kind of how it started as it starts as a as a, as a it starts biblically uh, through yes. through the gospel and want to know maybe a, an example or two that um, that has really compelled you or um, has continued something that you continue to look back on when you uh, when you see the storytelling ability of Jesus in the gospel. Well, you know, the, 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 the whole of the Bible is essentially a grand narrative. Now, in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, there's a whole bunch of songs. We call them Psalms and some pithy sayings that we call Proverbs. And you get to the New Testament, it's narrative for the first five uh, writings, the Gospels and the Acts, or the first, yeah, the first five. 
And then you got you got a bunch of letters, which are still writings, they're personalized. And when you look at narrative, you say, boy, something's familiar about that. Well, uh, you know, there was a there was a sci-fi writer, Ursula K. Le Guin, who died this past year in Portland, Oregon, who said about storytelling that story is the one thing that man has devised to promote understanding. She goes on to say there have been great civilizations that did not have the wheel, but there have been no civilizations that did not tell story or stories. And my question is why? And I would just say, in addition to what she said, I don't think that man created story to help promote understanding. I think God put story at the heart of man. So when I talk to people, I, I spoke to the Chamber of Commerce here in Fort Collins, Colorado last week, and I said, I don't know any of you folks, essentially, except that we have one thing in common, and then each of us has a story. And what's cool about that in a highly competitive setting, business setting, is that this is one place most people get up every morning to go compete, whether it's at work or in the marketplace or at school or on the ball field, whatever. And this is a, this is one place we don't have to compete. Uh, my story, uh, out of 7.6 billion stories on the planet, Foth's is unique. Tyler's is unique. And so Tyler gets an A before he even starts. And then you're a third of the way through your story, and, and you still have an A. Two-thirds of the way, still got it. And mm -hmm. when you're done, you have an A. Well, I mean, where in the world do you get And when you tell your story, the cool thing, is that it adds to my life. So this business about story or history giving is profound. It's biblical. It's natural. You can say one sentence and it changes how I see it. When you said, I too have been a stutterer, we're connected, Tyler, mm -hmm. more than more than just on this on this interview, right? I mean, we understand what it's like to be scared of public settings. We say, "What? oh God, don't let that person ask me a question, you know, because I've got to either cough or say something mechanical or wave my, you know, do something to get started or whatever it is. Anyway, mm -hmm. so story has all these pieces to it. And can I just say one thing about um, where we start naturally? Uh, I fly a lot. I used to look at my sweet mate and say, so, so what do you do? Well, that's a, that's a non-starter if you just lost your job. Or is, as we say in D.C., if you're in transition. You know, that's not, not a good. But so now I just flew back from California the day before yesterday, and I'm sitting by a fellow, and I say, so are you, are you going home or leaving home? And he says, I'm going, going home. I live in Denver. So, uh, we start talking, and I say, so where are you from originally? That's that question. So where where is home for you originally encompasses where are you born? Where did you grow up? And it's again, it's a non-threatening question. Everybody is from somewhere originally. And it allows us a place to start. Mm -hmm. So then when you have spinoffs of that, of like, what was the coolest place in your town to go when you were a teenager? What, what was the coolest place for you, Tyler, when you grew up to go as a teenager? Yeah, probably going to uh, Gillette yeah. Stadium 
uh, over in Fox Pro. They're, they have this uh, this, this big uh, entertainment center as well, and or not entertainment, the big shopping plaza. So you're so you're like a a a Brady guy. You're a. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a Brady guy. Um, a New England guy. I'm a New England guy. Yeah, I'm I'm a New England sports guy. So, do you say fudge sickle or fudgical, or do you say it at all? I say fudgical. <laughs> I have a friend Barry Corey, who's from Boston, who's now president of Biola University. Yep. He introduced us to the phrase fudgical. We always called them fudgicals before then, but now our whole family calls them fudgicals. There that, you go. That's fascinating. That's... And see, it's it, I, I I grew up in the well, my, my my family grew up in Wisconsin and in Illinois, so oh. I so I essentially I, sometimes I, I bring words or I think maybe inherently I've I, uh, I I use you know words or phrases that from from the Midwest as well or sometimes really? if I spend a little if I spend too much time over there I'll uh, I'll pick up an accent eh or, yeah. or <laughs> yeah. oh sure oh, oh sure dub bears dub bears do you. Do you... Do you want, like, like if you wanted me to go with you somewhere, would you say, Dick, do you want to go with? Do you say that? Because that's a phrase I learned in Illinois where you don't add the pronoun. You don't say, do you want to go uh, with me? You say, do you want to go with? Well, that's cool. So you're a, you're a mid-America East Coast dude. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think that that's, uh, that's so fascinating. And especially, as you mentioned, being in D.C. or uh, where the, the maybe the – one one impulse could be to start on a divisive topic, uh, or start on how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? But you know, I I, I think where we 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 close off so much more of the person by uh, by failing to do that. And I've been doing some reading, and I think one of the first steps is to to have this acceptance and have this this implied trust in the person that you're communicating with, and being able to to establish that is is. Is, is important for a relationship to develop and to continue. So you're doing yourself a disservice if you're if you're really starting on a topic that is already going to set the conversation into a different area. Well, and I think one of the things that Ruth and I talk about in the book yeah. is that over the years we've started seeing people as what I call walking books. I was asked to speak at a at a at a university on the West Coast some years ago, and it was a Christian college. And after chapel, they said about 50 students want to talk to you. Can we meet on the lawn outside the library? So I said, okay. And somebody said, so who do you read, Mr. Foth? Like, what kind of authors? And I told him a few. And I said, but actually, I have two libraries. I have the one like here where you can check a book out or you can go buy it at a bookstore, Barnes & Noble or something. And it was before downloading of, of Kindle. And I said, but but I actually have two libraries. That one has tree skin on it. And but I have this whole other library that has human skin on it and is sitting next to you. And the difference between that library, which is considered a secondary resource, if you do a bibliography and you cite a reference in a book, it's a secondary resource. If I do an interview with Tyler and I quote you, that's a primary resource. And the difference between a walking book and a and a, a a static book is that a walking book has emotion, it has passion, it has anger, it has frustration, it has joy. And the way I turn the pages in the walking book is by asking questions. I ask so many questions to other people that Ruth, when she's with me, will tell the person, "You don't have to answer all those <laughs> questions. You don't, you don't have to do that." 
But uh, I just find people, God's creations, fascinating. And if I consider them my teachers, that, that increases it more. And if I'm in D.C., where you have all of these divided, you know, every city, every town has divisions, whether it's socioeconomic or ethnic or racial or religious. So if you only go with your group, you end up in inbreeding. It's a it's a sort of kind of incest, if you will, forgive the the mm. that metaphor. And so I I was fifty one when I went to DC and I had to learn something. I had to learn because I grew up in a religious environment that made pretty strong judgments, okay? Evaluations, judgments, whatever you want to call it. I had to learn to I had to learn to suspend judgments at the front end and not make a judgment about the person. Just get to know him. And when I did that, and I read the Gospels, and I see Jesus is like a magnet for people that nobody else wants, or they're doing the wrong stuff. I, People say, you go around the world talking about relationships. I say, no, I go around the world, I, I hope, talking about Jesus, and he talks about relationships. That's good, that's good. That's good. Um, so I, kind of continuing on this, you know, we've discussed a bit more about how relationships are started and, uh, kind of the, well, the importance, how they're started, but, um, and, and, and I guess becoming, becoming known is I, I think where I want to transition and okay. how you continue this, continue a relationship. And, uh, and from your time, I'm sure you've, you've had relationships that have evolved over many of years. So, what kind of looking back and kind of continuing to process what has helped to to continue to create uh, you know these or help flourish relationships uh, you know that that have lasted for so many years you know i think in, in this may be obvious so obvious that i don't need to say it but i will hmm. is that communication is the key to life whatever it is whether it's your neurotransmitters and synapses in your brain connecting with the rest of your body, whether it's your thyroid telling your systems what to do. Connection and communication is the key. So I've gotten in the habit of I'm, I'm driving down the road, Tyler, and I think of somebody, I'll just, I'll just punch a button and call them and just say, you're on my mind. And so I just thought I'd connect. This morning, Ruth and I are about ready to go on a road trip to the East Coast to um, follow up on some genealogical things in Kansas and Tennessee and Virginia. And just ancestors, you know, I tell people we keep looking for the money and all we keep finding is pirates, buccaneers and horse thieves. <laughs> so, but, but we were talking this morning about a time in high school when I was in a play by Arthur Miller called The Crucible. This is back in 1959. And I'm working on lines on stage with a guy, just the two of us after school. And I, I at the end of this play, the lead character, John Proctor, who is me, it's, it's about the witch trials in, in Salem, Massachusetts hmm. in 1692. Proctor gets hanged, right? And I say, you know how they hang themselves on TV? TV let me show you how I do that. So I tied the rope hanging from the grid around my chest and and I made sure there was enough space so I could step off the little chair and show him how this worked. But just for effect, I looped it around my neck. When I stepped off the chair, my toes touched the floor, 
and then the rope retracted and I'm swinging off the floor and I'm literally hanging myself. I'm out, bam. The guy who's with me grabs me and screams and you know, they come and they get me down. But I, I could have died right there. Well, that guy is now a psychologist who lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. And so I said, you know, just this morning, just you know, 30 minutes ago, 50 minutes ago, I said to Ruth, you know, we're going through Knoxville. I had to call my friend Cortner. Haven't seen him in years. But it's that sort of stream of yeah. consciousness that keeps me connected. Ruth, on the other hand, is not a phone person. She's a letter writer. And in, in known, she talks about letters as a, as a means of, of building friendship. So every Sunday evening, she writes six ladies who are older than she is, who are shut in, and she gives them the news of the week. It's, it's, it's just what she, she is so faithful at doing that. And they're scattered across the country. One's in Seattle, one's in Texas, one's in Illinois. One, and that's how she communicates. And I think the key to keeping friendship is nurturing it every now and again. And I don't, you know, friendships have a, have a life cycle in terms of their intensity. So you, your friends that you're with in Boston right now, this is a season, those friends will be close, but there may be a time when each of you moves on to a different place and it's not as intense, but it's still real. And I think, I think, I think if we think of friends as sort of treasures, national treasures, or at least our treasures, we treat friendship in a different way. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? That does. I, I like the, I like the last word. If we treat our friends like treasure, um, because there's this, I think there's this element of, uh, of protecting, um, but also, but again, making it, I think if you, but if you have treasure, you, you don't always just want to hide it, but you want to, you, you want to put it forth, right. And you want to show it. So I, I like that. I think that makes sense. And again, yeah, I I resonate. I think when we, there's these times of intensity, uh, with certain, you know, friends or different seasons that you're in, but I think it speaks a lot to, uh, to how you're, I think the ones that can actually, I think when you're able to really connect, uh, and, and just continue that nurturing process with folks who have been in different seasons of your life, I think those are the ones that actually continue to, uh, continue to develop and move on. I wonder if there's like, if there's like research or studies into like, you know, if you reach back out to somebody one time after the season, then you're more likely to, you know, continue, continue, uh, keeping up with them in the future. But I mean, I've known that, you know, there's been folks, there's been some folks that have gone from season to season to season. Again, not the same intensity, but a, a, yeah. t- a touch, a, you know, a phone call, uh, well, uh, whatever it might yeah. be. I, I think you need to do a doctorate dissertation on that subject, Tyler. <laughs> well, you know, I think friendship and relationship generally is developed two ways, either over time or under pressure. So those childhood friends where you just met them on the play and you grew up, I, I have grandchildren in this town where we are in Colorado who are now are coming up through elementary, junior high or middle school and high school together. I did a little bit of that. I didn't do loads of that, 
but so those people will be in their lives all along the way. Um, but guys who are on ball teams together, women who play sports, um, you take trips together. When people take mission-type trips, you know, it's high-intensity, short-term. You may not even know the people before you go on a trip, but when you have common experience, it bonds you. People who are in military service, you see it over and over again. That's just, that's how it works. I recently went on a hike. I said I was going to hike a 14er out here in Colorado. They have 54 peaks over 14,000. It's sort of their first question. Have you hiked a 14er yet? I have not, and I probably never will. But I but I did a hike from about 9,000 to 10,500 here a while back with a friend. He's a professor at a, at a university here. And... Um, I made the observation, I don't think I'd ever said it this way before, but um, women, and this is, I think, distinctive between men and women. It's not exclusive. That is, it isn't a, a crass generalization. But I, I think when I watch women interact, they interact face-to-face -face and move to feelings much more quickly than guys, generally. Guys tend to start relationship not face-to-face, -face, but shoulder-to-shoulder. So you do stuff together, you know, you play ball or you do a hike or you mm. whatever it is. And I won't say, I certainly wouldn't say that's absolutely true, but I think that's often true. And so when we, like if you and I went hiking together, we'd be better friends. You know, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's just the nature of how things work. So That's a very cool, a cool observation. I want to know something that's uh, on your heart and any advice you'd like to share with uh folks who may be listening, uh, you know, drawing from anything from the conversation, from the book or anything else? Yeah, I think uh, in, the, in, in the book we talk about story, we talk about affirmation, we talk about covenant and dreaming. I think affirmation is such a huge piece of any relationship. I didn't marry Ruth Blakely 55 years ago for her to tell me what I'm not. I know what I'm not. I desperately know who I am, and she has helped shape that over the years. So affirmation <clears throat> through prayer, which is words to God, words to you, or through actions toward you or actions toward your world, that really is the stuff that builds friendships over time. doesn't mean you don't have confrontation. It just means the confrontation is a small piece compared to the larger bulk of things. I think... Um, let me, let me make this observation. We, we live in a world that is more and more connected on the surface and less and less um, responsive in deep ways. Less and less uh, re authentically caring. Uh, the whole technology revolution is both a gift and a huge challenge in that, you know, the studies that have done by, by a lady in your town, uh, Dr. Sherry Turkle at MIT, um, she has a book called Alone Together, and she says the Internet has expressed itself as the architect of our intimacies, and it creates a sense of companionship without the demands of friendship. So younger people, and I watch this in my grandkids who spend so much time on devices, and I'm a guy who spends a lot of time on devices, 
instead of broadening me, it broadens me informationally, but it shrinks me formationally. So her studies show that there's sometimes up to 40% loss of a, of a capacity for empathy by people who spend a lot of time on devices. Well, empathy is what makes the world go round. Empathy is what says, so Tyler, how are you? Mm. So how's, how's your family? What's going on in your world? That's empathy. And if you lose empathy, you lose life. And if there's anything, people say, are you frightened about what's coming, you know, and all that. I don't think I'm frightened about what's coming, but I have a huge concern for the generations that come behind people my age for this, this loss of empathy uh, if, it, if it in fact becomes sort of endemic to culture. And I just think that when you follow Jesus, uh, Jesus is the most empathetic, most disturbing, most exciting most person I know. And when I meet the Tylers of the world, that fleshes that out for me. So thank you. And that's a very, uh, it's a very powerful observation uh, that, that she has made and that you've um, kind of, that you've shared as well. The, we, we can have a possibility of losing 40% of, of empathy. Um, and yeah, that's, I hope I hope that's a call to action for us to uh, to really uh, yes. continue to lean in on uh, things that matter, uh, and it's not not normally on our phone either. So <laughs> one 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 more thing, real quickly yeah. in a, in a in a highly intense business marketplace culture, we talk about networking all the time because we have a goal, and that's to increase our bottom line, right? So my tendency is to say hi Tyler and to go through to connect with you but I really want to connect with your friend Fred Farkle now if you know that I'm going to do that or I say Tyler you know I don't know Fred Farkle but could you that's one thing if you know it but if I use you to get to Fred and once I get to Fred then I dump you that's antithetical to what we're talking about one of the things that made it work in D.C. is we said, Lord, lead us to people that you want us to meet, and we'll stop with that person. We'll just stop there. And it isn't that I meet Senator Husset so I can meet four other senators. It's just if you, you know, in our, in our world, the investment in two or three could change the whole world. I'm a Western capitalist, so when Jesus says we're two or three are gathered, you know, I show up. I'm saying, well, if three's good, then seven would be outstanding. Or if seven's good, well, then 39 would be out of the park. But what if three is like the most powerful number in the universe? And um, anyway, I'll I'll be rambling some more here. Yeah, books, that's no, that's that's good. Let's leave it. Let's leave it at that. And um, just wanted to know uh, for folks that might be interested in taking a peek um, and grabbing a copy of your book, where they where they can find find it. Okay, well, they can find it on Amazon.com, or they can go to a website that Ruth and I have called Known.fm, and it has um, some of the talks I've given, some podcasts, and even a few blogs from Ruth and me. So Known K N O W N dot F M. Wonderful. Um, well, Dick, it's been a, a pleasure having you on the Guys Like Us podcast and um, having this conversation and hearing a bit more about your 
your narrative, uh, your continuous narrative, uh, and some of your journeys and stories along the way. Thanks, Tyler. Loved it.